Go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. This morning uh, is going to be the last time, I think, for a while that we're going to talk about death and judgment, and I bet you're kind of excited about that. So am I. Honestly, it's a doctrine in the Bible that we have to deal with. Some churches avoid these things altogether because they want people to feel comfortable and feel good about themselves, but that is not uh, right (laughs) for us to do. And uh, as a pastor, if Jesus were standing before you, he would tell you these things. And so if I'm teaching anything different than what he has shown us to do, then I need to find something to do with my life that's different. And so it's important that we talk about these things. And we've been taking our time, you know, uh, and I appreciate your patience with me as we've gone through Revelation. This is the first time that I've gone through the book of Revelation, you know, obviously teaching as a pastor in, in a, with a congregation. And it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. And I can't think of a better time in our history of where we're at than right now that we're going through this book. I don't think it's any accident. And I couldn't have figured that out. I couldn't have orchestrated that. That was God's business, honestly. I'm not that bright. But he is. He's perfect. But this book is so important because it ties up, and especially the chapter we're looking at this morning is going to tie up all the ends. And we're going to see some very important doctrines in the Bible. And doctrine is important because doctrine affects your life choices that you make. The decisions that we make, if they're not, if, if, if those decisions that we make are just because of our feelings, we better be careful. But if our doctrine that we read in the Bible, the, the teaching of the Bible, if we live and make our decisions based on those things, we're going to be in a much, much better place. God promises it. You walk with him, you know, follow him and do those things. And there'll be a great blessing attached to it. In fact, this is one of the only books in the Bible where it says that there's a blessing attached to it. And if the blessing is a warning, then that's a good thing. Remember, this is an unveiling of Jesus Christ, not only of himself, but his character of what he's going to do. He is the spirit. Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. He alone knows. And he has manifested himself. He's made himself known through this book to us. In his love, we see in the first you know, couple of chapters, his love to the church and correction. But even in his judgment, as he deals with a world that has rejected him, and while his church is with him in glory, he deals with a world that has rejected him. And that is a, the love of God as well. The love of God is just not all pie in the sky. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a, a God of great love has also got to be a God of great vengeance, because when we violate his, his love and we violate who he is, there's nothing left but judgment. Does that make sense? And I want to talk to you about the heart of God before we get any further, because this is the last hurrah, really, uh, in this chapter. And, um, but the heart of God. What do you know about the heart of God before we get into this? Because we're going to talk about some really difficult things this morning. But in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, what does it say? It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us. He's patient toward us, not willing. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not his will that any should perish, either physically or especially spiritually in the second death, which we'll talk about today. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We are the only ones who make the decision, and he allows us to make those decisions about who we're going to follow, how we're going to be. And I want to challenge you today as we're going through this, what kind of person are you? Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. I hope at the end you will consider very strongly where you stand. And if you don't know him, you must know him. And for those of you who do know him, I want you to encourage you to wake up out of your slumber if you are in a slumber. Every one of us may be in a different place. Some of you may be doing really well. Some of you may may be barely hanging on by a thread. But I want to encourage you this morning that he he has the everlasting arms. And he's the one who holds you. He's the one who holds you. Even when you feel like giving up, Christian. The Lord said through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, As I live, says the Lord, this is Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Know this about God, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? 
O house of Israel. And I think he would say that to us today. He could say that to any people group. Choose life. Choose life. In Deuteronomy, uh, God, through the, uh, Moses, says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses, against, uh, witnesses today against you. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 and 20. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him. And he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Choose life. This is the character of God. He loves people. He loves you. It's not his desire for people to go to hell. By the way, he doesn't send anybody to hell. Did you know that? You may be gasping in horror. What do you mean? He doesn't send anybody there. They make the decision. We're going to look at today. We're going to look at that this morning as we see the book and the books that are opened at the White Throne Judgment. God simply confirms the decision that you have made. He doesn't send anyone, anybody there. I like that. Even though he could, he chooses to let you make the decision. And boy, that free will is a tricky thing, isn't it? I can choose him or I can deny him. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. We're going to just go over verses 4 and 5 again because I want to clear up something that maybe some of you may have been confused on. And it can be a slippery topic if, it's, if I don't share it well. So I just want to go over this again briefly. Uh, last week we, we looked at the first six verses and in verse 5 it talked about this first resurrection. And I'm hoping to clear that up for you. And I'm going to show this uh, slide up here on the screen a number of times in the first few minutes this morning to kind of give you an idea. But I want to show you um, some things about it. Oh, let me back up here. Um, if you notice, down here in the lower left-hand corner, there are three things in red, and then there's one thing in blue over here. And uh, what I want to show you is... The color is there, I made that on purpose because to show you that the first resurrection really includes phases, if you will. The very first phase we see was when Jesus was resurrected after his crucifixion. So there's the cross, he was resurrected, that's called the first resurrection, that's part of the first resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits, we'll look at that a little bit later. And then we have the church age, which we are still a part of. Now this chart is not to scale, <laughs> okay, and it's not proportionate, it's not, um, so anyway, so after the church age, the rapture of the church occurs. That's also a part of the first resurrection because we, we, just like Jesus, we receive a brand new body. It's not a body that is raised and then has to die again as we saw with Lazarus. This is a physical resurrection, a new resurrection body, and the church receives that here. And then we also found out in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 20 here that there's going to be a resurrection sometime at the second coming of Jesus, either simultaneous with his second coming or shortly thereafter and as he begins his millennial reign at some point in that time frame there's also going to be a resurrection of not only the tribulation saints those who were martyred in the tribulation but also all of the old testament saints that died in faith who are still in the graves See, when we talk about the rapture of the church, that's the, the people who have believed in Christ since the church was born. Those people arise. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, they, the dead in Christ will rise, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we, which are alive and remain, will be transformed and taken to heaven while God pours out his wrath for seven years on a world that has rejected him. But at the end of that time period, we have another resurrection where the uh, tribulation saints will receive their new bodies. The Old Testament saints who look forward in faith to Christ, they will receive their new bodies. This, in totality, is the first resurrection. And I'll show that to you later. We'll look at what Paul has to say about that in 1 Corinthians 13. 
So let's back up to verse 4 here really quick. It says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. It's a literal thousand years. We call it the millennium. But the rest of the dead, and this is speaking of the wicked dead, those who have rejected Christ, they did not live again until the thousand years are completed, or until they're finished. This is the first resurrection. That phrase, this is the first resurrection, really ties back to the end of verse 4. Don't think that the, the, the wicked dead being judged is the first resurrection. It really, you could really stick that phrase at the end of chapter 4, and it would probably make a little more sense to you. So this phrase is referring to the end of verse 4. We know that from Revelation 19 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that the church will have already taken part of this first resurrection when we are taken up to him. And that's what's labeled in red here. And we know that Daniel the prophet also tells us in his prophecy that the Old Testament saints will also take part of the first resurrection, which will occur around the same time as the tribulation saints at the second coming, or shortly thereafter. And you can see that. It's the third red there uh, uh, section there on the right-hand side. Daniel, just so you understand this, in chapters 1 and 2 of chapter 12, he says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. This is Michael the archangel. Notice what it says. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never... That was uh, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people, and remember the, 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 the angel, Gabriel, or angel Michael is talking to Daniel, talking about his people, notice. Even to that time, and that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Notice. And many of those who sleep in the dust, meaning who have died, shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Let me suggest to you that the everlasting life part is those first three, uh, the, the first resurrection. And we're going to talk about a second resurrection. The first resurrection included all those three things, but there's a second resurrection that has nothing to do with believers at all. It's a second resurrection of those who have rejected Christ. They will be resurrected and brought before the great white throne, and we will see that. Notice in verse 13 of Daniel 12, the angel spoke to Daniel specifically. He says, but you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Isn't that exciting for Daniel to hear? And that's exactly what happened. And so we look at this chart again to, to help you out with this. See, all unbelievers, in verse 5 it says that, but the rest of the dead, the wicked dead, will not live until the thousand years have expired. All unbelievers from all of time will not be resurrected until the thousand years are completed, and it will happen at the great white throne judgment, which we are going to look at this morning in verses 11 through 15. This great white throne judgment could also be called the second resurrection. It is a resurrection of the wicked dead, we've said that. It's also called the resurrection of the just. Jesus in Luke's gospel says, but when you give a feast, and here he's speaking directly to one of the rulers of the Pharisees who invited him to eat on the Sabbath at his home. And Jesus said to him, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this first resurrection is also called the resurrection of the just. This man, if he gave his heart to Christ, will, will receive a new body sometime around the second coming when Jesus comes back to the earth. He's going to be resurrected along with the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. But I want to bring to your mind the passage in 1 Corinthians that Paul spoke, and I really think this is a great key to all of this. And it's right here for us. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those um, 
has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or had died. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And here it is, verse 23, the most important verse. But each one in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. He died and was resurrected, a brand new body. That old body was not in the grave. You remember? They went in. They didn't see it. God transformed it. He received a new body, just like you and I are going to receive. But Christ, the first fruits, and then notice, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. When we think of Jesus' coming, it's really two separate events, isn't it? When he comes for us, the church, we meet him in the clouds, remember? 1 Thessalonians 4, in the rapture. But then he comes back again at the end of that seven-year period. He comes down physically to the earth, his second coming, we call it. This is the coming of the Lord. There's going to be a resurrection at each of those moments. The church first in the rapture, and then the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, which we have looked at last week. These members in verse 4 that we were talking about, they will all be resurrected together. And so there's three phases. We, are, we've, we've, we just looked at those. And again, there's our graph that'll help you. I'm going to leave that up for a little bit. Let's go on to verse 6. He says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. I should think so. This is called the blessed hope for you and I. After Christ has been resurrected, the very next thing in the, in the, in the program of the first resurrection is you and I being taken up to meet the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about that. I mean, honestly, there really is nothing I want more than to see him face to face. I've, I've had it with this world. I'm done. The only reason I'm here is to be a light and to show people and tell them about his love and his grace and his truth and the warning that comes along with that. That's my only purpose. Other than that, I'm done. <laughs> Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Amen. Notice, over such, the second death has no power. No power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. What? A hundred days? A hundred years? No, a thousand years. He mentions this six times in this chapter. It is a literal time period of a thousand years. It's not meant to be metaphoric. It's not meant to be an allegory. It literally means a thousand years. Otherwise, it would say something else. And the first time we hear of this idea of the second death was in Jesus' letter, remember, back in Revelation 2 when he wrote the letter to Smyrna. And he told them, you know, some of the good things they were doing. But at the end of the letter, as he always did, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death. We all die a physical death, usually, unless the Lord comes right now, then we'll never die and then we'll be caught up. That'd be, I'd like that better, actually. But the second death is eternal death, eternal damnation. It's what no pastor likes to talk about. It's what many churches in our cities and in our country Many churches don't like to talk about because it would make people don't want to come. They don't want to hear about these things. But it's part of it, isn't it? Because when we get into Matthew in a couple weeks, we'll start Matthew and all of a sudden the colors change. But right now we've got to deal with this because it's true. The second death or the second resurrection is or actually the second resurrection and the second death, they are reserved for unbelievers. John, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said this. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The resurrection of life is the first resurrection. And the resurrection of condemnation is the second resurrection. And the, the second death, which, which comes immediately after that resurrection. Does that make sense? And so finally, we get into verse 7. And it says, now when the thousand years have expired, remember Satan was put in the abyss for a thousand years. 
Hallelujah. Now when the thousand years have expired, notice, in just one verse, we've already gone a thousand years. Satan will be released from his prison. Again, there will be people born during this thousand-year reign that will maintain their natural bodies, and they'll still need to make a decision concerning Christ. It's going to be a great time for the church and those who are redeemed, but there will be people that will still have to make decisions about Christ during that time. And longevity of life will be the standard because the curse will be lifted to some extent or to a greater extent. We don't really know the full extent of that, but the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 65 that, that even for a child, for a person to die, even at 100 years of age, because the curse will be lifted, will be like infant death syndrome. That's what it will be like because the longevity will be restored. Right now, we may live 80, 90, 100 years if we're doing really well. But in the millennium, somebody who dies at 100 is going to be like an infant. They just started, and now they're dead. It's going to be very unusual. Isaiah says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and set their fruit, and eat their fruit, excuse me. And that's pretty significant. And notice, but remember, the church, during the millennium, we uh, will have our resurrection bodies at that time. And based on what Jesus said, we will not be given in marriage. So I'm assuming we won't be having children. There'll be plenty of other people having children. Our role will be different then. We'll rule and reign with him. So you may ask, why was Satan bound for a thousand years? Perhaps for the very reason that regardless of where you've grown up, regardless of your environment, whether you grew up in a great environment or a not-so-good environment, whether you grew up in a world that was dominated by Satan or in a world that was dominated by Jesus Christ himself, the propensity of man is to always choose evil regardless of what environment you're in. Do you see God making a proof of that in the, in the millennial reign? He will be on the throne, and probably David uh, working with him in some capacity, the King David, but he's going to prove to all that it doesn't matter whether we live now where the prince, the ruler of this world, Satan, we have a decision to make. What decision are you going to make? And then we can also have an environment where Jesus is reigning, and yet there'll be even rebellion then. It will be quickly snuffed out, but there will be rebellion at times. That's why the Bible says that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron, See, man is a rebel at his heart. It says in Romans 8, uh, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want to please God, don't you? I don't want to be a rebel. Even as a Christian, I can be rebellious. I can allow my old nature to come up like a seething volcano. Have you ever seen those volcanoes? They get real nervous, you know, in in Hawaii when they see some of those volcanic mountains, they start to smoke at the top and they're like, oh, what's going to happen? The lava is just bubbling underneath the surface. That's like our old nature wanting to express itself. And thank God for the Spirit of God who comes and he puts a lid on it and he says, As long as you allow me to be Lord, I'm going to keep this old rascal under wraps. I'm going to sit on him. And I'm not going to allow him to express his ugly, woeful self. Have you felt your old nature bubbling up? Happens on the highways, doesn't it? Happens with your kids. Happens with your spouse. Notice verse 8, and... And when Satan is finally released after a thousand years, what is he going to do? Is he going to give up and say, Lord, forgive me. I've been a fool all this time. Please forgive me. What is he going to do? No, he's so bent on evil. He cannot change. He will not change. And he's going to go out to deceive the nations in verse 8, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is the sand of the sea. We read about Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But let me suggest to you that this battle here, this occurs at the end of the thousand-year period. The battle that's in Ezekiel can happen sometime, either it could happen at any time. Some people think it's going to happen after the rapture of the church, that this battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to occur. 
We don't really know exactly dogmatically when that battle is going to happen, but it is very different from this battle that we're looking at right now. Ezekiel's battle is very different than this one. This one's going to be over like that because God is not going to put up with it. He's going to deal with it swiftly. Some point we get, we'll get there, we'll look at the differences at some point of these two different battles, but they're two separate battles. But he's going to gather together the same characters, and it'll be easy because they've already got a heart bent on rebellion. And never before in history has these players, right now, has Russia and Iran They've never been bedfellows. They've never been confederate with one another. But now for the first time in history, folks, these two players, the main players in this battle, in Ezekiel's battle, they are confederate. And it it wouldn't take very much for them to, to come together and come against Jerusalem. So it could be in our lifetime. It could be right after we leave, after we're taken up. There could be a period before the Antichrist... uh, forms this treaty with Israel and allows them to build their temple. There may be a gap of time there. We could have, it could happen there. We really don't know. But it doesn't matter because right now, at the end of that thousand years, he's going to raise them up again. And to me, it's amazing that after a thousand years of, reigning, of Christ reigning on the earth, that there'll still be people saying, we will not have this man rule over us. He will be physically present. Think of the fool's errand. Think of the the futility of that. Even Satan knows that he cannot win. Don't you think he's read the book? Believe me, the devil knows the Bible better than you and I do. That's why he quoted it to Jesus in his moment of temptation in the wilderness before his ministry began. Remember? What did the devil tell him? A bunch of uh, current events? No, he spoke to him the word of God, and Jesus responded with the word of God. That's a lesson for you and I. The devil knows the Bible really well. He likes to twist it, though. Has God really said you shall not eat of the tree? Oh, he knows that once you do, you're going to be just like him. Don't you want to be free from these restraints that he puts upon you? Can you hear the devil? Don't listen to him. Notice in verse 9, they went up, Gog and Magog, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. Who is the beloved city? It's Jerusalem, amen. Notice the swift and the final blow. It says that he surrounded the, the saints of the beloved city and notice, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Does that sound like a swift and just pounding of the fist? He rules with a rod of iron. And he's going to snuff this out very quickly, very quickly. This is Jesus ruling and reigning. Verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Finally, this, this one who has plagued all of us from beginning, from the beginning in the Garden of Eden up until, the, up until this time, even at the end of the thousand-year reign, boy, there's a lot of history he's had to deceive and to, and to be deceived. And the destruction and the horror that he has wrought upon a world the lives and the death, the deception, the hate. It's all going to come to an end. The devil who deceived them was cast in a lake of fire or brimstone where the beast, notice, where the beast and the false prophet are, <clears throat> excuse me, and they will be tormented, what, just a couple of days, maybe a couple years? No, day and night, forever and ever. Never forget that, folks. God loves, believe me, his love is insurmountable. But when he is about judgment, and he says forever and ever, the judgment is forever and ever. Don't let anybody fool you any other way. And don't let anybody twist your heart and say, well, that's not a God of love. Oh, yes, it is. That is a God of love. It's very much a God of love. He gives you the decision. How much more love can be that when you get to make a decision about something? To not be loving would be to say, you're going to be mine no matter what. I'm going to make you a robot and you just got to obey me. That's not love, is it? That's manipulation. Love is not manipulation. God loves and so he gives a choice. And then we reject him and then we get angry at him and shake the fist because he sent us or he allowed us to go to hell. It's because we chose to go there. He, had, he, he just basically, I agree with what you've chosen. Oh, and by the way, here are your works. All the things that you did, you deserve that place. But again, that's why I started, I prefaced the message this morning with the nature of God, the love of God. It's not his will that any should perish. Remember that. 
the lake of fire, this place we call Gehenna. We call it Gehenna because it's the place at the southern end of Mount Zion during the kings, during David's day and afterwards. There was a, if you go to Israel with us, you'll, you'll remember you go down to the Gehon Spring and right around the corner down there at the very southern end of Mount Zion where David's palace was, there used to be a trash heap there. They call it the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. They also called it Gehenna. This is where the kings would burn their sons in the arms of Molech, a molten image. They would lay their kids in those things and kill them and sacrifice them to false gods. It was a trash heap and it was a horrible place of death and idolatry. That's what this lake of fire is going to be like, except it's going to burn forever and ever. And remember, in Matthew 25... Jesus said, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't even created initially for man. It was originally created for them. For them. And now we get into verse 11. The great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Notice that. The earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And the one who was sitting on the throne, I believe, is either, it's either God the Father or Jesus Christ, but I believe it's Jesus, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But anyone who is at this judgment, this great white throne judgment, there will be no hope for them. There will be no hope. If you're standing at the white throne judgment, it's, it's because the, the sentence has already been decided. But to prove it to you, the books, and the book is going to be opened. The deeds that you've done will be shown to you. Notice at the end of that verse, it says, From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. This may be the time when this current heaven and current earth will be totally done away with. We see it in Isaiah. Isaiah says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll, and their host shall fall down. The leaf falls from the vine, and as, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. We see Isaiah talking about this end of the current heavens and the earth, and also Second Peter chapter 3. What does it say? For this is, they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth, standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world then existed, perish, being flooded with water. Notice, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved, are now preserved, excuse me, by the same word, they are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. When the earth and the heaven flee away from this white throne, it could be that time when God says, he allows it to be dissolved with fervent heat. We know in, uh, in that same chapter, in verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. The earth and the works in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, here's the exhortation to us. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hasting the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be dissolved again, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. I think I get the point. Do you get the point? They're going to be vanished. They're going away. Because in chapter 21, hallelujah, next week, we're going to see a new heavens and a new earth. All of this stuff will be dealt with. Now we can move on into the eternal bliss of our King. I've been yearning to get to that chapter. Haven't really, uh, it's, been a hard, uh, it's been a hard time. Notice verse 12, and I saw the dead. These are the wicked dead, small and great. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you are a, a poor person, whether you are a, a CEO of the biggest Fortune 500 company in the world. It doesn't matter. I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God. They were standing at attention, ready to receive their sentence. And notice that books were opened, and another book was opened, singular, which is the book of life. So now we got a series of books, and then we have a book. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. Do you think that everything that you've ever done, I mean, if you, if you reject Christ, do you know that everything that you've done in your life is being recorded in a book? 
Everything, every rejection, every wicked thought, every wicked deed is being recorded. God knows. He's got a perfect memory. He doesn't have a problem. He's not like a fancy computer. Believe me, Apple has nothing on God. His mind is perfect. He can recall dates, moments, milliseconds if he chooses to. That's the genius of who it is that we serve. I don't know about you, but that just jazzes me when I think of it. But this throne will be just, it'll be fair, unlike the lesser thrones that we see in the courts today, where men and women can be bought off, they can be bribed, <laughs> but not the kingdom of God, not at this white throne judgment. There's no, nobody going to be able to stand up for somebody and say, uh, hey, Lord, you know, if you let this guy off, remember that house in the Caymans that you wanted? And that fancy car and that nice account in Switzerland? I can make that all happen. Just let this guy off the hook. And the Lord will go, no. (laughs) You're going to be on the hook. There's going to be no bribing Jesus. The judgment will be holy and just. In Psalm 9 it says, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. This white throne is for judgment. Not for believers, but for unbelievers. He shall judge the world, verse 8, in righteousness and shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. See, that's who God is. He is upright. And notice these books, these records of dirty deeds. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Some of you laugh because you know what I'm talking about. There's a record of dirty deeds in these books. And then the book of life. And notice that these are going to be blotted out. Their names will be blotted out of the book of life. And see, you know what I love about God is I believe this, that when a person is conceived, even probably before, because God said to Jeremiah, before you were in the womb, I knew you. I believe that even before you're even born, God knows who you are, and he writes your name in a book of potential salvation. It's a book of life. And then there comes a point when you die, and you still rejected him, that your name is blotted out. Your name is blotted out. It reminds me of when in Exodus chapter 32, when the children of Israel had committed the idolatry of the, the golden calf, remember? And Moses is up on the mountain, and he hears all this roar down there, and they're having a big orgy down there around this golden calf. <laughs> and remember what Moses, he returned to the Lord, and he said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will... Forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Moses knew that his name was written in there, but he says, Lord, forgive them. And what a heart of Jesus he had at that moment. Lord, forgive them, or else blot me out. And I'm so glad the Lord didn't honor that, because we know that Moses is in glory Again, God will not cast anybody into the lake of fire. You will choose that. And notice that it won't be the opinion of God. It won't be his opinion, although he, it could be because he is trustworthy and he remembers all things, but your deeds will be shown. The record will be shown. It can be laid out for you. And perhaps that's what the Lord will do. Maybe he's able to do that just in his mind. He's able to lay before you as you stand before there, and you're just going to, all of a sudden, the, 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 the gravity of everything you've done is going to be known to you in an instant. And then you know there, there's, there's no hope. There is no hope at that point. There is no second chance. And see, this is the thing that Paul says that constrained him. As he went about ministering, it, it constrained him. This is the thing that was on his heart that he wanted to tell people about Jesus. He wanted to rescue them. He wanted them to be rescued by God. Is he really such a hard taskmaster? Is he really so bad? Is he such a bad master? Has he been good to you, even though you've gone through trial and tribulation? He loves you, and he loves me, even though I go through difficulties. I, that'll never change. He loves. He wants to reach people. That's what constrains us. And, and, and for me, that's one of the silver linings in this whole thing that we're talking about. You know, this death and judgment, and now we're seeing the end of it all coming now to fruition. All the ends are being tied up. We're going to see it today. If that doesn't provoke within me something, I, I have to check my pulse. Am I really alive? Am I really one of yours, Lord? 
Because how can I look at these things and know the end of it all and not be propelled, not be constrained by that love to share with others? Share with people out of love for Christ, not out of guilt. Ask God to give you a heart like his. You can't do it out of guilt, not out of anger. We've seen people do that. They stand on the corners, you're going to hell! Mm. You seen people like that? I have. Like, wow, that sounds like a, a wonderful thing to get, get a hold of. I want that. No, I don't want that. Who would want that? Somebody screaming at you, telling you that you're, you're going to burn. I mean, really? Is that going to attract people? Yeah, it is a truth, by the way. But can you say the truth in love? I think we can. I think that's what God wants. Did you ever see him yelling at people? Raising up a scroll and hitting them over the head with it and leaving the KJV imprint on their forehead? Because I'm sure that's the Bible that Jesus had was a KJV. Or an NKJV. But what choice are you going to make? Some of you here know the Lord. Some of you don't. But let me tell you, you must come to Christ. You must be born again. There is no other option for you. The best and only option. Didn't Jesus say it to himself? We read it earlier. Choose life. Choose life. Are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? Planned Parenthood has chosen death. But you choose life. Choose life in every facet of it. The truth is life, even if it hurts. The truth very rarely is easy, is it? Doing the truth, saying the truth, living the truth, it's going to be a battle because you live, on bat- you live on a battleground right now. But soon, as we're reading right now, that battle is going to cease because the enemy of our soul, Satan, will be finally cast into the lake of fire. I say hallelujah. I'm looking forward to that day, and boy, he hates me, and I don't really care for him either. He's broken my heart. I believe this is Jesus meeting out this judgment. What does it say in John? Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, has committed all judgment to the Son. Jesus is more rightly outfitted to do this. Because after all, it's he that you've rejected. Notice, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't get God without Jesus. If you got Jesus, then you got God, the Father. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God the Father either. That's what he said in another part of the gospel. It's all hinges upon him, doesn't it? But notice verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now, God knows your DNA. I remember uh, someone recently was asking, well, what would happen if I, if I, get, um, if I get cremated? You know, is God going to be able to raise me up at the, at the rapture? And I said, absolutely not. You, you have, there's no hope for you. No, of course I didn't say that. If you're burning to ash, I mean, what can he do with that? You know, you're gone. I don't know. Pick up the pieces? I mean, no, I, I make fun of that, and, uh, but, I, but I don't mean to because it was just a f- little silly thing, which is good at a moment like this. But God knows your DNA, if, if he even needs it to give you a new body. I don't think he really does. I don't think he really cares about your DNA. When Jesus was resurrected, he could have used the same body. He could have just dissolved the old body and replaced it with a new one. Because the disciples didn't even, they had a hard time. Is that, is that really him? Yeah, it is him. It is him. There was some confusion about him because he had a different body. Slightly different, but unbelievers for thousands of years have perished in the sea, in the lakes, in the oceans of the world, and they're beyond decomposition. Is it going to be hard for God to raise up these evil people who have rejected Christ out of the sea, or even a believer for that matter, at the rapture of the church? Is it going to be hard for him to go, you know, they're, they're everywhere now. They're in the sediment. They're like 50 feet below on the ocean floor. They've been there for a couple thousand years. Boy, that's going to be a tall order. I don't know if I can do that. Hmm. No, it's not going to be a problem for God. So don't worry. You get buried in a casket, that's fine. If you get cremated, that's fine. Whatever. 
But notice, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. All those who went to hell, or the place called Hades, that whole container, if you will, of of people who have rejected Christ is going to be delivered up. And death, thanatos in the Greek, whatever that means, there's something about this. I don't know if it's the physical act of death or death personified. I don't really know, but they are both going to be delivered up and the dead who were in them, and they were judged, every one, notice, according to their works. Their works. And they were judged. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Notice, this is the second death. These compartments of the dead. Think of these as like a, a county jail, really. Right now, they, when, people, when somebody dies... If you're a believer, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord, or you go to Abraham's bosom before, I won't get into all that, but let me just say this, that when a person dies in faith, they go to Christ, they go to heaven. But when a person who dies in unbelief, they go to hell, they go to Hades. And that container, wherever that is, only God knows, and he knows the the limits of it, he knows the boundaries of it, he made it. That is going to be delivered up, and they will be judged at this and they'll, death and Hades will be cast into Gehenna, or the lake of fire. We call it Gehenna. It's, it's just called the lake of fire. But that's the eternal resting place for the damned. That is eternal condemnation. That is the second death. And thus the scripture will be fulfilled. What does it say in Corinthians 15? For he must reign, Jesus must reign, till he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is Thanatos, is death. The last enemy, death, and Hades, and everything with it, the whole package tied up in a nice little bow, off the back of the FedEx truck into the fire. I don't mean to sound so flippant about that, because it's not funny. It'll be a spiritual death. It will last forever. The second resurrection of those at the white, right, great, say that three times fast, at the great white throne judgment, they will receive a new body that will be outfitted for eternity that will never burn up, it will never be destroyed, but it will be outfitted for eternity in torment and fire. Nobody likes to talk about that. It's not the kind of message that people flock to. And I can understand that. In Mark's gospel, Jesus said this. He says, but whatever, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And then he goes through a series that if your hand offends you and it caused you to sin, cut it off. Now, I don't believe he really meant cut it off, but you need to take it that seriously. Otherwise, we'd all be, we won't be able to write letters. We wouldn't be able to type. Every one of us would be without a hand. And by the way, we'd also be without a foot. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, my feet have caused me to sin many times, but I don't, you know, I'm not walking around with a peg leg like a pirate. Or my eye. My eyes have certainly done that. Should I pluck both of my eyes out? I need to take it that seriously. Do you take it that seriously? At the end of this all, really what it means is when, we, when you think of the believer, you and I, we are born twice. We're born physically, we're born again by the Spirit of God indwelling us, and we inherit eternal life. But the unbeliever is born once. They're born once by their parents, and then they die twice because they died physically, and then they have an eternal death, the second death, which is eternal death. It'll never end. And if that mean, that sounds like it should scare you, it should scare you. It doesn't scare you because you're among the redeemed. But think of the security that you and I have that other people don't have. See, this is what Paul, I believe, when he says, the love of God constrains me. Let this get under your skin, church. Because one of the things that, in our days, evangelism is waning we're no longer talking about people, to people about Jesus. I can't wait for us to get out of these doors in the summertime when the days are longer. And man, we, we got to get out into this neighborhood again. 
I would love to do that. We'll do it together. We'll learn something. Don't, don't worry. Don't be scared. We'll do it together. We'll all be frightened together. And then we'll, we'll come back and we'll feel so much better. We'll be like, wow, I can do that. Of course you can. You can do it. It's good for us to do it. But not only out in our community here, out in your community, wherever you're at, be a light to the people around you, the, your family, the places you work, the place you go to school, wherever it is. It doesn't matter. Be a light there. And notice in verse 15 it says, And anyone not found written in the book of life, anyone not found written in the book of life, they, these are people now, not the Antichrist, well, we've been talking about people, but they will be cast into the lake of fire as well. Again, is it because God was mean and says, I don't like you, you didn't receive me, and I just I want to be loved. Is he like a, a, a tyrant child that didn't get his way, and therefore he's going to inflict judgment? No. No, the books are going to be open, remember. God is very happy with, by himself. He's very content with who he is. He loves fellowship with us, but he doesn't need us. He's perfectly fine before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He was perfectly content. But you know what? There's nothing greater than having somebody love you volitionally, willingly, giving their life, making a choice. Not just the physical, oh, you're so beautiful, of course I love you. Well, that's easy. Hollywood knows that. But real love is making a choice. Making a choice to love your mate, to love your spouse, in sickness and in health. In Hebrews 10, verse 31, it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I remember one time when I first got saved, I went to a, a down in South Florida. I, I was just still wet behind the ears. I was just newly born again. And I remember hearing those hellfire and brimstone messages. And I used to love them. It convicted me right to my core, but I loved it because I, I, saw, I saw for once a, a real justice. Because we don't see that in the world. And it frustrates us. And that's why people take matters into their own hands. That's why we have vigilantes. That's why people shoot, out, shoot somebody outside of a courtroom because justice wasn't done inside the courtroom. Everybody knew the guy was guilty. DNA proved it. But because of a technicality or because he didn't read, read him his Miranda rights when he was arrested, all of a sudden he gets off scot-free even though he killed three women. And then is it any wonder when they let him off, the father of the deceased women, or one of the deceased women, shoots the man outside the courthouse. And then we go, oh, that's so horrible. Of course it's horrible. But if justice was meted in there, you know, and again, I'm not justifying what this guy did out here, but justice belongs to God. Vengeance belongs to him, right? Therefore, we don't have to do it. It belongs to him. He's a much better judge at it. He's much better at it. And when he does it, it's done in perfection. You and I just need to pray and to ask God to change our hearts. We don't need to resort to violence in any way. Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? Yeah. Now, I want to show you something that I put together just to end here. We're going to end, but I want to show you something. And um, this is just something I, you know, as I was going through this, I, 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 because I'm a visual person, I wanted to put this in kind of a, a way that I can understand. Scott, can you, uh, never mind, just leave it up. You can see there's a big red circle over here on the right side, and then there, on the lower left-hand corner, there is a blue circle called the abyss, or the bottomless pit. And then the red circle is the lake of fire. And as we've read through Revelation chapter 20, this visually helped me understand what was happening. And I think you'll see the totality of it and, and, and how, God, how thorough God is. When we look at this, we see that in, in Revelation 19, verse 20, we saw the beast and the, uh, who was the Antichrist and the false prophet. They were cast into the lake of fire, weren't they? And then we also saw Satan being sent to the, the abyss or the bottomless pit. In twenty, in you know, chapter twenty, verses one and three, and then in Revelation twenty, verse ten, we also see now Satan now being cast into the lake of fire, taken out of his holding tank of the abyss that he'd been in for a thousand years. He gets placed in Gehenna, and then at the great white throne judgment, there's Gehenna, the false prophet, 
the Antichrist, the devil are all in there. But God is not done. Remember, he takes death and Hades and he casts them into the lake of fire. Now they are going in there. And then finally, those who are not written in the book, Lamb's book of life, they also get sent to that place. And in the end, it all, they all end up there. All the agents of evil and all those who followed him will be in that lake of fire for eternity. It'll never end. Let's end with this verse. I want to end with a smile. Because <laughs> this is not easy. What did Jesus say in John 6? He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will, in, I will by no means cast out. God is not going to cast anybody into that place of Gehenna, or, or I'm sorry, the lake of fire. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to him. His love is so great. Have you ever experienced love like that? Now, maybe you grew up with a father. Maybe you grew up as a child and you had a father who was really mean to you. Or maybe your mother was really mean to you and you didn't have an adult in your life that was kind to you, that didn't really show love. Maybe Some of you grew up in abusive homes. And so your idea of a good father is so warped and is so foreign to you. But God is not like that. Don't superimpose your experience from your childhood upon God the Father. So many people keep that, they're kept from God because they think of their earthly father, who may have been a wretch, who may have been an abuser, a drunkard, a womanizer, a drug addict, a criminal. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father. Notice, this is the will of the Father, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. When you are in Christ, you are firmly fixed in his hand. John chapter 10 says that there's nothing in heaven above or in earth beneath that can take you out of his hand. You are secure. If you are saved, you are saved. He's not going to go... Oh, you gave your heart back in 1988, but you know what? You've been messing up lately. I'm taking that back. He just doesn't do it. You may go through times of slumping, and you may go through, go through times of regressing, but you're still one of his, and your life won't be real easy until you come back to the, to the Father, till you come running back like the prodigal child, and you see him smile with his arms open. Notice, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That's you and I. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son of God, Son, and believes in him may have everlasting life. And here's the promise, and I will raise him up at the last day. And that's what we await for. We await for that rapture experience that's next on the, on the uh, not the political horizon by any means, in the prophetic that's what's next on the prophetical calendar, we believe. So what decision are you going to make? Will you make the decision for Christ today? Even if you've already known him, make a decision for Christ today. Make a decision in your life that you are going to read his word, that you're going to study his word, not just read it. You're going to study it and you're going to live by it. Will you live by it with me? Can we grow together in it? If there is anybody here today, please come up afterwards. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. You can leave screaming mad if you'd like. But if there's any of you who do not know Christ, please get with somebody. I'd be more than happy to talk to you, pray with you, and receive Christ today. Don't wait until tomorrow. You don't have tomorrow. You've got right now. We're not guaranteed anything after this. Make your decision for Christ today. It has to be today, not tomorrow. And for those of you who do know Jesus, seriously, consider what you're doing right now. And anything that you're doing 
that doesn't add up, ask God to forgive you and ask him for cleansing. Say, Lord, forgive me. Isn't that promise in 1 John chapter 1, isn't that still valid today? I think that's verses 8 through 10. If we confess, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Will you do that with me today? Let's be a church that he can look down upon and say, boy, the, you know, I mean, he sees you white in, in, his, in his blood, but practically we get defiled, don't we? If you're in that place, will you rededicate your heart to Christ today? You can do it privately. You don't have to come up. You can if you like. I'd love to pray with you. But I'm speaking especially to those that don't know Christ. Make the decision today. Come up afterwards if you like. There's plenty of, uh, got some pastors and elders would love to pray with you and for you. You don't need us, but we'd love to do it. Do not wait. Amen? Let's stand. Next week, a new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. As much as I'm looking forward to the millennium, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be great for us, but it still won't be the ultimate utopia. The ultimate utopia is going to be when the new heavens and the new earth come. There's going to be no room for anything except for Christ and us and our new bodies, redeemed forever in eternal bliss, where there are pleasures forevermore, the good pleasures. Let's take that word back from this awful culture that we live in. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord. And uh, Lord, we pray for anyone this morning that has never made that commitment to you, God, that today, this very day, this moment, Lord, even right now in the privacy of their own conscience, Lord, that you would just take residence in their life, in their heart, and that you would make the exchange right now, God, because you know more than all of us how serious that really is and how wonderful that really is. Lord, would you do that work? And please, Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes to live for you, Jesus, for those who do know you. God, help us not to play games anymore. Help us to get more serious with you than we've ever been, to be more devoted to you than we've ever been, to be reading more than we've ever been reading, to be in prayer, Lord, to be doing the things that we know we ought to do. God, have mercy on us and forgive us, cleanse us, send us on our way. May we do it with joy and a big smile, God. For we love you, Jesus, and we thank you that your love is far more intense than ours could ever be, and how we long to see you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.